Today on Blue 58, one of the most important figures on the Packers barely does anything in public, but he has a huge impact on the team. Let's talk about Mark Murphy and his three-year-old restructuring of the Green Bay Packers. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Like last episode, I wish it was under better circumstances. I had a two-week-long content plan for the lead-up to the Super Bowl. It was in place, ready to go. I knew what we were going to talk about for every episode leading up to the Super Bowl. You can go ahead and throw that in the trash. That's okay. We can go through the off-season together. And other than the unpleasantness of the off-season arriving in the way that it did, I actually do like a lot of the off-season. I think we can really grow as football fans and as people who understand the Packers during this time. And I think it's a really interesting chance to look back on the season that just ended and see what we can learn about the players involved, about the team and how it played and and when it played well, when it didn't. So that is what is starting today. We're going to have a top-down look at everything that went on with the Packers. We're going to start with the front office, look at the coaches, look at the players, and then look at every game again until we get all the way to the bitter end at Lambeau Field and that 31-26 to loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. In the meantime, I would like to encourage you to support us on Patreon and join our Discord community. That comes with being a Patreon supporter Any amount gets you in there. You can donate as much or as little as you would like. $1 is the minimum, though, uh, but that gets you access to our Discord server, and we are having some lively discussions there about all things off-season. You can take a look at our off-season content plan there that also is going out on Patreon this week. Um, And also vote on what we're going to read as a group for the Blue 58 Off-Season Book Club, which is always a fun part of the off-season. We tried that for the first time last year to great success. A lot of people have been requesting that already, and uh, we are in the process of considering what books we will read, though we will probably not start reading until after the NFL draft. But that is a ways off yet. In the meantime, we've got last year to look back on. Before we get to Mark Murphy, though, I want to talk about a couple more things from the NFC Championship game. Had some time to digest it, had some time to think through it, and I've still got a few questions about what went down. First and foremost, why didn't Tremont Williams play at all? He ends the NFC Championship game with zero snaps. He was the only active non-quarterback on the Packers roster to not play. You can look right there in the NFL game book for this game. It says, did not play Tim Boyle, Tremont Williams. I don't understand that. I don't understand for a couple reasons. First, Tremont Williams has to be, has to be, a better option than Will Redmond. It just has to be. Redmond, in the two years that he's been with the Packers, has had consistent issues standing in the right place, catching the ball when it comes his way, and boy, did we see that in a key spot on Sunday. And whenever he's out on the field, it just seems like he's carrying around a giant red sign above his head that says, throw it here. And most teams are just oh so willing to oblige. And I realize that Tremont Williams is not a safety, and Will Redmond does bring a lot of value on special teams. But this is the NFC Championship game, a shot to go to the Super Bowl. Why are you going with guys 
that do not give you the best shot to win. Secondly, why wasn't there a change that allowed to Williams to get on the field? We all saw the problems that Kevin King had in the first half. We all saw the problems that Chandon Sullivan had in the first half. We all saw the problems that Will Redmond had in the first half. Why no change? That bothers me a lot. And it bothers me because one of the things that Mike Pettin has always said that he likes to do is get guys on the field in whatever circumstance he can. Whether it's a small package or a big package or whatever, he wants to use guys who he thinks can contribute. But over the time that he's been here, we haven't really seen that play out. Instead, we end up seeing guys fall into a category that I call Petten's preferred. He's got his preferred guys and he plays those. And that's fine. But then don't tell us that you want to get guys on the field if you think they can contribute however many plays it happens to be. There's a lot of evidence of him doing that in the past. The great book, Collision Low Crossers, talks about former very high draft pick Aaron Mabin. He was taken by the Buffalo Bills with the 11th overall pick and released after two years and zero sacks in 27 games with them. Uh, But he was picked up by the New York Jets and actually turned into a fairly useful player for one season. That was in large part because Mike Pettin was able to help Rex Ryan get him on the team or get him on the field in a very small package. They could figure out what to do with him in a small situational role that allowed him to do the things that he did well, getting to the quarterback. Pettin hasn't shown that he's willing to use that guys that way in Green Bay. The really, really the only way that he does stuff like that is with his nickel and dime hybrid linebacker safety type stuff. Well, everybody in the league does that now. That doesn't set you apart as a defensive coordinator. And why can't you figure out a way to make a change down the stretch in the NFC Championship game? I, I just don't have an answer for that. And this is the frustrating thing about all these questions, about all the things that comes out of the NFC Championship game. We are never going to have answers for any of it. Even even the last significant play call in that game, the decision to go for the field goal instead of the touchdown on fourth and eight uh, from the Buccaneers' eight-yard line. We've got Matt LaFleur saying, you know, anytime something doesn't work, you regret it. Uh, You've got Aaron Rodgers saying, you know, I thought we were going to have four shots there. You've got even some analytics that say it may not have been an entirely indefensible decision. We're just never going to know what would have been different if they had gone for it. And that's the frustrating thing about being a fan. You just, there are no answers to that. Second big question I have is how did the Packers do in our paths to victory? So I laid out six things I thought the Packers needed to do to win the game in our Friday preview before the NFC Championship game. First and foremost, don't quit running, but don't become too enamored with it. So the Buccaneers have a very, very good run defense and the Packers Uh, did find some success there. And overall, I think I'm pretty okay with how much they ran the ball overall. There have been some some complaints subsequent to that about the Packers getting away from what they did well, blah, 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 Uh, you know, losing their identity as a running team. That there there are some problems with that. First, the Packers are not really a running team. Um, They're a passing team. They run more than they pass, or they pass more than they run. In neutral situations, especially, First and second down, outside of two minutes remaining in either half, with the game relatively close, they pass about 55 to 60% of the time. That's not a running team. 
And I'm also not of the belief that running the ball would have prevented any more sacks. I've heard a couple arguments, I've seen a couple arguments say that getting away from the run game diminishes your play-action pass. We'll take that on in a second. It also just forces you to be a straight drop-back pass outfit, which exposes you to more pass rush type stuff. That really doesn't bear water with with where the the Buccaneers sacks came in the game. Most of the sacks did not come in long yardage, obvious passing situations. It's not like the Packers are getting behind the sticks and that's where they gave up their sacks. Here's where their sacks came, five of them. Third and nine, two plays after a run. So it wasn't like they didn't try to establish the run there using that outdated concept. Another sack on second and eight. Okay, not really much you could do there. A sack on first and 10. A sack on third and five. This was the first three and out after a Brady interception. Third and five should be a quick pass anyway. The tackles just got annihilated here, so it's not like Rodgers was taking some kind of deep drop because they were way behind. And then another sack on first and 10. I really don't see how running the ball would have changed anything there. Secondly, there are mountains and mountains of evidence that show that running the ball does not improve your play-action passing. It is an old coach speak thing, and it just does not happen to be true. It just isn't. There is no other way to say it. People talk about setting up play action with the run. It just does not work that way. That's not how it works. Running the ball for the Packers on Sunday would not have made their play action more effective because that is simply just not how it works. I, I know that's a lot more harsh than I usually am. I usually show like try to show data and stuff behind it, but the data is so clear on this. It just does not change anything. It doesn't, it just doesn't. The one caveat here as to how the Packers use their run game is that I wish they had run in the red zone more. You talk about those two trips where they came up empty, multiple throws by Aaron Rodgers into the end zone. They didn't even attempt to run the ball one time. Not with Aaron Jones, not with Jamal Williams, and especially not with A.J. Dillon. And this is something I've never understood about their A.J. Dillon use. They just do not use him in that part of the field at all. Did a little research on this today. Very, very strange fact. Outside of the Tennessee game, A.J. Dillon had zero red zone carries all year. Not a single one in any game all year. Not even by accident. He had six carries all year long in opposing territory outside of that Tennessee game. It just doesn't make any sense. Why not throw your battering ram running back out there? It's like the Packers decided that they wanted to buy a really expensive, really impractical sports car and then just use it to go get groceries. They spent a premium draft pick on this running back and then just didn't ever hardly use him. We're going to take him out to get groceries once a week. And there will be our fun trip around the neighborhood in our Ferrari. Second thing that I really wanted the Packers to do as a path to victory here was find mismatches and exploit them. I think this one is kind of a push. Devontae Adams lined up in the slot at all, but we didn't see as much motion. We did see a little bit early when Aaron Jones was still on the field and healthy, but after he got hurt, it really evaporated. I I do think they did a pretty good job of getting people into positions where they were capable of exploiting the opponents. There was just some other stuff going on that, that made that less practical. 
Uh, Robert Tunyon, though, for his part, did not seem to, to make much of an impact in this game. I also wanted the Packers on offense to take some deep shots. Worked pretty well. I wish they'd tried it more. Uh, there was one obvious deep shot that worked pretty well. A couple others to MVS that, I don't know, you can hem and haw about those uh, being a little bit off target, but, I mean, pretty good coverage. A lot of hand fighting down there, too. I wish they had just tried it more. That's a trap the Packers seem to fall into a lot. Uh, playing defenses like the Buccaneers, they're just trying to gonna go. They're just going to try to go short, 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 and it just doesn't always work out for them. In fact, it rarely does. On defense, uh, hit Tom Brady. That's going to be a no. Uh, generally speaking, the Packers did not do a good job of getting to Tom Brady. Uh, got some push early from um, Kenny Clark up the middle, but generally speaking, just was not enough. Was not enough pressure on Tom Brady. They did collapse the middle on occasion, but generally speaking, I think this is a no as well. They did not follow this very well. We did not see as much Zedaria Smith in the middle of the field as I thought we would, which is a little bit disappointing and a little bit mystifying. I thought we were going to see a three-edge group uh, with Kenny Clark in the middle along with Zedaria Smith and then Preston Smith and Rashawn Gary on the outside, but I didn't see that a whole lot, Uh, and that was mystifying as well because Zedaria Smith was one of the best interior pass rushers in the entire NFL this year. That It just boggles the mind a little bit. As far as playing press man coverage, I think we got a bingo here. Uh, the Packers did a pretty good job playing man-to-man coverage throughout the entire game. There were some significant misses in the first half. And with that, let's talk about Mike Pettin's game plan in general a little bit. Generally speaking, generally speaking, I don't have a lot of problems with how Mike Pettin played this game. Generally, it was pretty good. It's just that the Buccaneers executed like crazy on third downs. And honestly, you kind of just got to tip your tap, tip your cap to the opposing team in situations like that sometimes. Forcing the opposing team to convert a bunch of third and long plays is a pretty good idea. That's a good way to win. But check this out in the first half. Here's how third and long went for the Buccaneers. Third and nine. 14-yard completion, 3rd and 13, 14-yard completions, 3rd and 10, a sack, hey, not bad, 3rd and 9, 52-yard completion, 3rd and 9, incomplete. That's one explosive play, two near-explosive plays, and then a sack and an incomplete there. If you are converting 3rd and long plays like that, there's not a whole lot an opposing team is going to be able to do to stop you. Now, We can caveat this the other way, too. That third and nine completion, the very first one, Kevin King misplays the ball in the air going to Mike Evans along the left sideline. Second, third and and long, uh, Chandon Sullivan gives up inside leverage on a slant or some sort of in-breaking route. Can't let that happen. Tom Brady knew where Kevin King and Chandon Sullivan were every single time. And so we're left with the Packers on the outside looking in, in part because of poor performance on defense in an NFC Championship game again. And that brings me to Mark Murphy. Let's talk about Mark Murphy a little bit. Back it up a little bit. Evaluating Mark Murphy is kind of like looking for a black hole, or at least how looking for a black hole used to be. I realize that we can now somehow photograph black holes, which is incredible. That's one of those things... Uh, not to get too far off on a tangent here, but as a, a lifelong fan of space exploration and everything that goes into it, the idea that we are now 
able to take pictures of black holes is incredible because I remember being eight, nine years old and watching stuff on like Nova and PBS or whatever about, about space and all the crazy stuff out there and just hearing about these black holes and how they were gobbling up everything that came within millions of miles of them or however, however long it is was baffling and no one can see them because they swallow up light and all of those sorts of things. And now science is advanced to the point where you can take pictures of them and that is all just super neat. But it used to be you're basically looking for where stars should be and seeing how the gravity in that area is affected by this supermassive object that's super dense and affecting everything around it. And in a way that's kind of like Mark Murphy. You're kind of looking for what's not there. Murphy affects the Packers in so many ways, yet it's not like he just gets up in front of a microphone on a weekly basis and says, yes, here are the things that I did that affected what the Packers are doing today. Many of the changes that he made are long running, and I think it's time to talk about those changes. Because as we look back on Packers history, I think we can say that we are squarely in the middle of the Mark Murphy era. I think you had the Ron Wolf era. You had the Ted Thompson era. I think we are now in the Mark Murphy era. Early 2018, after Ted Thompson retired or was moved out of his role, however you want to characterize it, we did a podcast. I didn't look up the exact episode number. It doesn't really matter because I'm going to repeat the salient points for you here. We talk about how this is Mark Murphy's now and we're all living in it. And generally speaking, I think his moves and his decision to become more involved in football activities has been a good one. It has freed up a lot of the, uh, cleared up a lot of the the siloing issues the Packers have had. It has gotten the team president, the de facto owner of the team, more involved, which is never a bad thing. But... There are also some downsides here. And in that 2018 podcast, I compared Mark Murphy's decision to reorganize the power structure of the Packers to basically have everyone report more directly to him to the Marian reforms of Roman history, to non-students of Roman history. There was this important person in Roman history a long, long time ago, prior to when things really got cooking for the Romans, named Gaius Marius. He reformed how the Roman army worked, but also laid the groundwork, incidentally, for the fall of the Republic. He made the Roman army a lot more efficient. Way back once upon a time, the Roman army was basically a volunteer army. Anytime they needed to face a threat, they had to raise up soldiers and just send them off and say, do your best. Preserve the Republic. Hope that you guy who were, was a farmer up until 15 minutes ago can figure out how to stick that pointy thing into somebody from the other team and keep us all safe. We're all counting on you. Do your best. What Marius said was, hey, what we should do is figure out what works as far as military strategy and then just have like a permanent group of soldiers who do just that. Let's make it worth people's while to stick around and do this dangerous job will probably be safer, all of us. And then when we actually need an army, we're going to have some worthwhile soldiers around. And it worked great. The Roman army became the envy of the Mediterranean. They went on to become the force that everybody knows them to be today. But there was this one little, one little subtle problem with these reforms. 
the army became wildly effective, but the army's loyalties changed. Here's how Wikipedia puts it. The loyalty of the, region, of the legions shifted away from the Roman state and toward the generals who led the army, as soldiers now had a direct financial incentive to support their general's ambitions. It became alarmingly common for a general to prolong his imperium by using the army to influence the Senate and consolidate his power. Some even went as far as to declare war on their political enemies, leading to civil war. If you are a student of Roman history at all, you know exactly what this led to. This led to the most famously titled man in all of Roman history, a man by the name of Julius Caesar. wasn't actually his title, that was just his name. But the position he basically created out of thin air went on to be what they called a whole bunch of other people who had the same job after him. He was such a good general that all of his soldiers following the reforms that Gaius Marius had laid down, became loyal to Julius Caesar instead of loyal to Rome. And you can see if you're trying to hold together some sort of democratic system, why that would be a problem. If you want your guys fighting for the United States of America, you want them to have incentive to be loyal to the country, not loyal to the guy who's bossing them around on the ground. Caesar exploited that, raised up a fanatically loyal army, trained them incredibly well, piled up a whole bunch of wealth for them by conquering most of Europe and committing the odd genocide as he did it, and then goes back to Italy and says, all right, I'm in charge now. Deal with it. And they did, and they killed him. That is entirely beside the point. The point I'm trying to make by using that very extended analogy, and it's, an, it's the offseason, so you'll forgive me if I extend analogies a little bit, is that Mark Murphy's forms, or reforms to the Packers were necessary, but they may also have side effects. And I think we may be dealing with some of those side effects this year. It's nice to have been in this business long enough to be able to refer back to predictions you made years ago and be able to review them now. In 2018, Mark Murphy took a much more active role in how things played out for the Packers. He hired Brian Gutekunst after Ted Thompson retired. And a year later, he was very active in the hiring of Matt LaFleur. But that's the good stuff. The black hole stuff is more of a mixed bag, I think. Now, we don't have hard information on this. But it seems like Mark Murphy had a very active role in two things. First, retaining Mike Patton as defensive coordinator after the 2018 season into 2019. And then possibly last year after an embarrassing defeat in the NFC Championship game. Secondly, it seems like there may have been some sort of organizational role in the failure of the Packers to hire Darren Rizzi, who seemed to be Matt LaFleur's preferred choice for special teams coordinator. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but the Packers' defense and special teams have been not too great the last two seasons, and it's not clear, again, how big a role, if any, Matt LaFleur had in either of those decisions. Mark Murphy was very concerned about siloing in the Packers as an organization, and that's why he decided to get involved. It's possible, maybe even probable, that Murphy's involvement has pushed the needle the other way. Maybe he is now too involved. Maybe being involved at all is too much. The old model, under former President Bob Harlan, was to hire the very best people you could 
to be in charge of the football side of things, Ron Wolf, Ted Thompson, and so on. Oh, I guess that's it. Um, and then get out of the way. Mark Murphy has been more active than that. And there are at least two decisions that we can point to that say maybe that was not a good idea. If Mike Pettin is fired, I hope that the process very clearly indicates who is in control. And I hope that person in control is Matt LaFleur. Because by and large, in his two years now at the helm of the Packers, Matt LaFleur has shown that he is capable of making very good decisions and doing them regularly. I hope that if he gets the opportunity to hire a defensive coordinator, that it will very clearly be his choice, that there is no organizational pressure one way or another. We have indications that may have been the case in the past, though nothing confirmed. And if Mark Murphy is involved in that, and if it has hurt the Packers now two years in a row, that is a big, big problem. These questions don't get asked a lot, though, because the Packers have been so good now for two years. But it's something to keep in the back of your mind. When the Packers are having these struggles, ask why are these people in charge and how did they get there? Who is responsible for that? If that's Matt LaFleur, that's one thing. If it's somebody else, that's a whole host of different problems. And I realize, to bring things back to where we started here, that this is not necessarily hard evidence one way or another on Mark Murphy. But I think it's important to talk about him anyway, even if we don't have hard information. The power structure in Green Bay is relatively unique in the last couple generations of Packers history. The effects that it has are important and will shape perhaps the next generation of Packers history. And that's always worth considering as we're watching it unfold. So I've got for you on this episode. Do appreciate you listening in. We've got a lot of great off-season content coming, and I am very excited to bring it to you. Yes, it would be great if the Packers were in the Super Bowl, but we can get through the off-season together. And another season is not all that far away. Plus, we've got all kinds of time to talk about other interesting stuff. Take long detours into Roman history or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever else we would like to talk about. That's what we can do together. It's our podcast. We can, uh, we can explore whatever topics we want, and I, I'm hopeful that you will be with us uh, as we go throughout the entire offseason. If you want to bring friends, that's even better because I'd really appreciate it if you share this podcast, if you enjoy it with somebody you think would enjoy it as well. That's how we're going to grow this thing. That is the number one source of new listeners for Blue 58 is your referral. So if you do that, I am very grateful and appreciative of it. And if you like what you hear here, check out our Patreon content as well. And if you chuck in a buck there, you have an opportunity to join our Discord server too and interact with more Packers fans and myself as well. It's a good time. In the meantime, uh, continue to have conversations about the Packers. Join us here as we all try to become smarter Packers fans because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.